0: Tuesday, June 7th is World Food Safety Day. Well, we can talk about food safety, uh, which is the need for people to have food that is free of contamination. That's the definition according to the World Food Security Council. And food security is the need for people to have access to food. We're going to talk a little bit about both. On today's podcast, my guest is Dr. Natalie Riediger. She's an assistant professor of food and human nutritional sciences in the Faculty of Agricultural and Food Sciences. And she is driving discovery and understanding how to effectively address nutrition-related health inequities amongst oppressed populations as one area of her work. It's interesting that, and I'm going to ask her about this because I was interested to find out that Natalie was the recipient of the 2020 Terry G. Falconer Memorial RH Institute Foundation Emerging Research Award. That sounds like a houndful. We're going to find all about it. Natalie Riediger, welcome to Humans on Rights.
1: Thank you, Stuart, for having me.
0: Natalie, we talked at the top about uh, maybe a a land acknowledgement. Please feel free if uh, that's something you would like to start the podcast on.
1: Yes, well, you acknowledged, I I think that you're on Treaty 1 territory, as well as the homeland of the Métis Nation, and I am as well, uh, in the basement of my home. So uh, I'm very grateful to live here in these lands and, of course, eat the food that uh, is produced from these lands. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting today.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Natalie. So before we get into, you know, the, all of the great work you're doing, clearly, at the University of Manitoba, uh, let's start uh, from the beginning. You were uh, born in
1: Winnipeg? I was born in Winnipeg, yeah, at the women's hospital.
0: And tell me a little bit about your early education and where you went to school and what ultimately got you interested in in becoming the PhD and doing the studies you're doing. But what 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 did you do and where'd you go to high school?
1: So I grew up in North Kildonan. Uh, I went to Westgate Mennonite Collegiate from grade seven to grade 12. And my family had a grocery store in Winnipeg's inner city at the corner of Isabel and Ross, across from Uh, the Freight House Community Center, and that's where I spent uh, a lot of my time growing up. So I'd go there even as a child, I'd say weekly, and then started working there regularly as soon as I was old enough uh, to work there. And I worked there regularly throughout high school and and part of my undergraduate uh, education until I got into research and then kind of worked there casually all the way through to my PhD when it closed in 2012.
0: So your folks decided to close it in 2012?
1: Yeah, well, after 75 years, I would say the business wasn't uh, really viable anymore. It's, it's a very tough business, I'd say, to sell food in a community that's food insecure. And part of it was just, it was, it was time. Four generations of us worked there. And, you know, the, the landscape for the grocery business had changed a lot during that time.
0: But that's like being an institution in that community right? I mean, four generations, it's, you know, people would know, you know, your grandparents, your parents, I mean, who you are. I mean, you, you know, in that community, you see people coming through the, through the doors and you get to know their family and their kids and what they're doing. So it's very much a, a community, I, I I would think.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I'd say a lot of my, you know, a lot of my work now is still community-based and, and, and a lot of that was inspired through that work because, our business survived for a long time because of those relationships with community organizations, the schools, uh, we delivered to a lot of the school lunch and breakfast programs in the area. And certainly, you know, I didn't work there regularly near to the end as much as my, you know, my dad and my uncle, uh, who had a lot of relationships in the community. And, you know, I think still attend funerals of, of people they met through that work. And, and, and I still see people, you know, that I remember from working there and and I still have friends who I keep in contact with. And so, yeah, it was, it was a very big part of our lives.
0: When you think back on that, Natalie, growing up with a family business, uh, particularly, you know, running a grocery store in a community and building those relationships, share just a couple of your sort of fondest memories of what you think back of those times that maybe has had an impact to help you motivate you to what you're currently doing today.
1: I'd say in terms of fondest memories, it's obviously the relationships and not that many people, I don't think, get the chance to work with their family. <clears throat> so that's something that I really, you know, look back positively, like I got to work with my grandfather, my brothers and my cousins. And 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 so that was positive. And, and also the relationships in the community, like we were very close with a lot of customers. I knew most of the people who came in there, especially when I was working regularly certain days, just like. You know, still today, most people have their schedule of how they go grocery shopping. So I know knew the people who came in Fridays and Saturdays, and when I was working, uh, social assistance checks were still checks, not deposited in accounts. So you get to know people's names through that way too, because they would come in and use their checks to to purchase groceries. So you know their name and and their address because we did deliveries. So so we go you know into their homes, and and a big part of my job was also taking deliveries order so i talked to a lot of people on the phone this was before any i think any other grocery stores did uh delivery and so you know that was also an important service that i think we provided and you know for some people just talking to somebody on the phone giving your grocery order is an important part of their day so i mean there's lots i could go on for forever about a lot of the the positive memories and but i mean there's also struggle and so i'd say that's kind of also what has motivated me. Like you see, a lot of problems, and you experience a lot of problems in the system, the food system, and the social assistance system. You know that impacts families' uh, ability to to access food, and and you know we spent a lot of our effort trying to respond to those, and and you can only do so much.
0: So, Natalie, you know, I I agree. I mean, I think there's you know, things that you learn, uh, the goods and the bads and the challenges that you see. The one thing I just want to just before we leave the, the grocery business, I just want to, you know, tell you that, you know, growing up as a kid, I was a, a, a Boy Scout or a Cub, whatever you want. And we used to have National Shoe Shine Day where you would have your Macintosh apples and you would, you know, basically have an apple and you would shine shoes. And, you know, that's how you would sort of generate a little bit of revenue. My point being is that when I go in today to buy apples, like they have, I don't know, 15 different kinds of apples. I mean, I always sort of thought Macintosh was kind of the apple, but that is really quite a, a you know, I mean, obviously that's growth. There's organic apples and there's different kinds, Pink Ladies, uh, uh, Fiji. There's so many different apples. You know, you wouldn't have seen any of that in your day. I mean, things were were a little bit more maybe focused, I would think.
1: Maybe I'm dating myself. I remember a lot of those apples. Yeah, Granny Smith, (laughs) Pink Lady, Gala. But yeah, even it's funny. I was just telling somebody the other day, I don't remember. We never sold avocado. You know, we had a pretty broad produce selection, but I don't recall ever having avocado. So that's something that's kind of new. And definitely there's a lot more fruits and vegetables and, and different types of, I'd say, food products today for you know, sure than there was even then. And of course we have pictures of the store from the thirties and forties and fifties. So I do appreciate how much the, you know, the availability of different foods has changed over time. Yeah.
0: And, and I think, you know, to your point though, Natalie, is that what you probably witnessed were, you know, from time to time, there were people that would come in that maybe their entire paycheck might go to purchasing their food. And for some, you know, you, you get a chance to understand some of their, their backgrounds and some of the struggles they're having as families because you know them. You get to know who they are. And, you know, that I think is, uh, is, is, of course, and we don't have to get into this, but that's so, so missing in today's food world. I mean, it's, you know, massive stores, massive islands, massive shopping carts. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, what food security Means and how is it that you studied from high school? You went into university, you got your bachelor's, then you've got your master's, and now your PhD. Uh, how did you start to really drill down on what you felt was the importance of food security?
1: Well, I'd say my path wasn't, I guess, totally direct. Uh, my undergraduate and master's degrees were in nutrition. So I would say food and nutrition was kind of my first interest. And the program at the time, and I'd say somewhat still is, you know, it's very biomedical focused in terms of the effects of nutrients and health. And, uh, and, and not that I'm, I'm still interested in that, but uh, I would say there wasn't a large focus on social determinants of health, you know, like the social factors that influence uh, how people eat and access food. And so I was really interested in kind of that that bigger picture, and I did my PhD in in public health, so that kind of gave me more of a a bigger picture kind of training. And my PhD research was more focused on diabetes epidemiology, which is very much related, uh, I would say, to food food security. So then I came back once I finished my PhD, and and eventually got a faculty position. You know, you once you're at at the university in a faculty position, you have a lot of leeway. I would say to kind of research what interests you. And so then I was kind of a bit like a kid in a playground and now I can do what I want.
0: (laughs) So Natalie, let me just um, sort of frame this conversation for one second. When the word food security comes up, you know, when I was kind of doing my research before we got into this conversation, you know, part of me in my mind was thinking food security. Well, that means that when I go to whatever retail food store that I choose, and, you know, I'd name a food store if they were sponsoring this podcast. None of them are, so I'm not going to name them. But, you know, you go into a store and food security simply is that, well, yeah, there's going to be food on, on every aisle I go to. There's going to be shelves. They're going to be all stocked. I mean, that, that says uh, food security. Really, that is, um, you know, not really the definition of when you look at sort of from your perspective, from a health perspective and from a human right perspective, that's not what food security is about. Am I correct?
1: So there's lots of different definitions of food security. I'd say the the most global, broad definition that's used includes four pillars. So that's availability of food. Uh, And that's kind of how what you just described is, you know, there's, there's food in the grocery store and it's there, it's available. You know, we have it. The second pillar is access. So in Canada... Generally, when we talk about food insecurity and when we measure it in surveys, we're focused primarily on economic access. So can people afford it? And, you know, there's different components of of access, but I'd say economic access is the the primary one in which we we look at. You know, in other contexts and and certainly in Indigenous contexts, we can consider, you know, do people have the hunting equipment, you know, the fishing equipment, the boat, et cetera. Um, in terms of access. And then the the third pillar is utilization. For example, you may have a grocery store full of food, but if you're an infant and there's no infant formula, which is a problem right now, there's nothing you can use, utilize. And utilization can also take many forms. Perhaps you have food, but you don't have a stove to cook it, uh, right? You can't eat raw uh, pasta. And then the fourth pillar, which is really cross cuts, availability, access, and utilization is stability. So you can think of stability in terms of availability relating to climate change. You know we just had a drought, severe drought here last summer, and so that impacts our stability. Uh, of course, Canada has, you know, we're pretty stable in terms of our food supply. But things like, you know, the war in Ukraine is obviously going to have a major destabilizing aspect on uh, the supply of food, global supply, and then access. You know, I think of income cycles, you know, somebody might be able to get food when they get their social assistance check, but then by the end of the month, no longer have uh, access to food. So those are kind of how we we generally conceptualize food security. That's my long-winded answer.
0: Listen, it's it's fantastic. Thank you so much. I mean, those four pillars, availability, access, utilization, and stability. I mean, there's so much to unpack in each one of those. And we'll come back to that, Natalie. But Just maybe let's flip this around and talk about, you know, food insecurity. What impact does that have on the population?
1: I'd say everything. We probably don't really appreciate how important food security is. I'm in a nutrition department and most people probably think of nutrition. And of course, that's really important. And and especially at key periods of growth, you know, pregnancy, infants, childhood. You know, not having sufficient nutrition can have detrimental impacts on health. Uh, I'd say probably less well appreciated is conflict. Food insecurity can cause conflict and also be caused by conflict. You know, when there's scarce resources, people need to compete. You know, we also see that, you know, in Canada, even uh, injuries, violence are more common in food insecure communities. Um, because resources are just so scarce.
0: So, on that, Natalie, let's talk a little bit about that. When you say injuries are caused um, by food insecurity or by conflict, am I understanding that correctly? Can you just explain that a little bit or what, what you mean by that?
1: Well, I, I think it, integra- it it's part of experiencing poverty. We know that in communities where there's greater poverty, there's more violence, injuries, because It's kind of part of the social, just the social context of scarcity because people need to eat. And so you need to find ways to access food and and people can turn to different um, risky behaviors or work, selling drugs or sex work that maybe they wouldn't have done if they had access to the resources that they needed. Um, and so, and, and I'm talking about this is in a global context, but I think this also happens in Canada. And that is probably underappreciated and under researched is, is how much not having access to these, the basics of life, they're not direct, but it's an indirect effect on health. Uh, I'd say infectious disease, there is research in Canada that people who are food insecure are more likely to also have infectious disease. And some of that is partially nutritional because you're more at risk of infectious disease. But it's also, uh, you know, it's not just nutrition, it's, it's how then you manage food insecurity that then can increase your risk of acquiring various kinds of infectious diseases too.
0: You know, the thing that always amazes me, you know, when you sort of do some research uh, and, and, and sort of get into these conversations is my understanding is, and you please correct me if, if, I'm, if I'm not correct in my statement, but I believe that, you know, and this is a global comment. That there is enough food that is available or prepared or, and I'll use maybe the term accessible with with a caveat on on accessibility, but accessible for everybody in the world. Yet so many people go hungry. And and if I could just even come back a little bit and bring it to Manitoba, you know, because I know you've done some some studies around, um, you know, sort of oppressed populations. Why is it from, you know, from your perspective, if you can share that people go hungry?
1: Well, like you said, in Canada, it's not a matter of not having the food. Obviously, we're a food-producing nation, so it's not the fact that we don't have it. It isn't primarily an access issue, and which disproportionately impacts First Nations, Métis, uh, and Inuit populations in Canada, as well as other populations. Uh, We know that Black Canadians, uh, refugees also experience food insecurity uh, disproportionately. And so a lot of that is, is shaped by, for indigenous people, colonialism uh, and, and the historical impact of that, in terms of distance and I'm talking now about you know northern or remote communities, because we've centralized or prioritized this market food system in, in terms of how, you know, when settlers came, and, and now we have grocery stores here, right? There were, weren't grocery stores before settlers. So we have this market food system that we have made, settlers have made, indigenous people now rely upon. And so that costs more than to ship food, for example, up north and to remote communities. So the price is very high. So that's one reason, but of course, even in say Winnipeg, where where I worked for many years, we don't have that shipping issue. And so I, I don't think it's exclusively a shipping issue or exclusively a price issue, it kind of misses the point because it's kind of the whole, the whole system that you know, many people here in Winnipeg
0: struggle to afford food and are
1: food insecure.
0: Natalie, has COVID had an impact on food insecurity? Yes. Okay, so let's talk about that. How has it impacted or how has COVID-19 had more of an impact on food insecurity than perhaps even before? What's, what's the multiplier there and what's the impact?
1: I think we're still working to figure out the exact impact. Um, there have been some surveys. Statistics Canada did a survey, I think early on in the the first wave, and we know that household food insecurity increased during that time. We know that food bank usage went up during that time. Obviously, there were huge economic shocks in terms of people losing jobs, and so that's an aspect of the instability, you know, that I talked about. Um, in, in terms of a core pillar of food insecurity. So that instability was a challenge. And of course, now we're dealing with uh, inflation, which is is also uh, aggravating existing food insecurity and also getting newer people who are previously food secure kind of into this food insecure realm, even if they are working. And so it's important to know that a lot of people who are food insecure are still are Working and they're still food insecure, and so uh, some of this has to do with you know wages. And I know in Manitoba we just announced we're raising the minimum wage, so there's lots to it. And I mean globally now there's uh, a war in the Ukraine, which is a major major food producer, <laughs> so that's going to cause also a lot of challenges, as you know that the supply that would have come now be impacted and. and my understanding of that situation is Ukraine mostly exports exports to Africa, uh, and so those countries will be feeling the effects of that.
0: I think one of the challenges with all of that, as we look at the impact, because everything is really interconnected globally. You talk about what's happening in Ukraine. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah, you look. You know, in in kind of Western Canada, we're you know always. You know, kind of when I was growing up on a farm, we were always sort of considered ourselves to be the breadbasket for the world. And there's probably a lot of truth in that. But, you know, when you take a major supplier out of the food chain, there isn't somebody that just can automatically start replanting a crop that's going to produce in days or weeks or months. I mean, the cycle is huge. And so, do you see that as? you know, sort of an opportunity for other ways to look at bringing other, when I say other kinds of food, Natalie, I'm not even quite sure. Let me kind of think about that. What I'm saying there is just that, you know, a lot of times people are very creative and they figure out different ways if something happens and they're trying to fill a gap. Is there other elements of nutrition maybe is better way to look at? Is there other elements of nutrition that might come into back stop where some of those foods that people were looking for that are not available anymore just to ensure that there's still nutrition in their diet
1: you know i'm not the the producer expert i would say that i've heard from you know uh, agricultural economists and people with expertise in this area that you know there there will be some other backstop because it's not a perfect we produce this year what people are going to eat next year but part of the effects will be the prices are going to rise across the board for those foods that were grown by Ukraine, which are major staples like wheat. So there will be some backstop. I'd say the challenge, I guess, is that we get most of our calories from staple crops. And that's more the case for food insecure populations, where the majority of the calories come from staple crops. So hopefully, you know, other countries can. As well as locally grown, you know, food is is grown in Africa as well. Um, you know, we'll start to fill that in with other foods, but we're also dealing with climate change, and and that's really having, I think, uh, detrimental effects because we're having these shocks, you know, and it's very difficult to prepare for 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 events you're not anticipating, right? Like a flood or a drought. There's there's challenges there. And so certainly we have to rely globally on other producers. And I think that will continue to be really important. Um, but there's going to be challenges I think, ahead.
0: For sure. And when we looked at the four pillars that you talked about, availability, access, utilization, stability, let's just talk a little bit about access because you talked about sort of the economic access and, and what I Really liked Natalie is the way you sort of frame that in this position. Say, for example, first First Nations, if they're talking about sustenance, so the the ability to you know have um, a boat or to have the availability to go out and sort of capture fish or whatever it may be, or if they're if it's bow and arrow hunting or if it's gun hunting to you know capture deer or whatever it might be or moose to uh, use that as sustenance. You know that that economic access is really interesting. Talk about, you know, from your perspective, where you see some of the challenges around that access.
1: Well, I'd say a lot of it is primarily economic, again, because it it costs to get a gun. It costs to get a a boat or, you know, a snowmobile or what have you that you need to go out and and hunt. So the government of Canada has made a program now because there was criticism initially for um, programs that were uh, primarily uh, focused on market foods, because we should be supporting Indigenous communities to access food how they want to access food. So there are, I think, more programs to support that. That's not my area for each research specifically, so I'm not sure how effective um, those programs have been. But of course, even if you would then have the equipment now, if there's lots of, uh, and, and we are seeing this in the North, I know, you know, dwindling animal populations. That that's also uh, becomes a challenge, right? If the animals aren't there, if the fish aren't there, you know, if there's hydro development, and and now you have to learn where where the fish are now um, because um, environments are changing and they're changing quickly. So that goes back to availability. They're really all they're really all uh, interrelated, and so I think anytime having economic Access, financial means. Anytime one of those pillars is impacted, those who have the most resources will will be able to uh, deal better with these kind of shocks, right?
0: Every, everything is interconnected. You can't just sort of take a pillar out and sort of say, "Okay, we can work on three pillars." There's four pillars there. You know, the availability, availability, I should say, and access, as you as you talk about, is, is tied in. You, you touched on something that uh, you know. Here we are in in uh, twenty. 22, and um, it's making news headlines around, is the the lack of infant formula. And you look at utilization as one of those areas. What's your sense of what's happened, why we're out of, or maybe you're not aware, which is fair enough, the shortage of infant formula? Have you got a comment
1: on that? You know, I'm not that familiar with the situation, other than that I know it is a a problem. My understanding, I think, is it's one, one producer, Abbott is not producing, something happened in one of their plants. Sorry, I haven't been re- keeping up with who's there.
0: Yeah, no, I just, it happens to, you know, it's just kind of in the news. I just didn't know if it was something that across crossed your desk or something you wanted to, wanted to share on that. But what, you know, so maybe let's just back it up a little bit, Natalie, and talk from a utilization standpoint. Is there anything in your research when you look at one of those pillars that you can share uh, the importance of what utilization means?
1: Well, I, I recently did a project looking at dietary gluten avoidance because two percent of Canadians avoid gluten, one percent of whom most likely have celiac disease, uh, who, who can't eat things like wheat, which is a staple in our our diet. And so, for individuals who have celiac disease and live in societies where the state they can't eat the staple, utilize the staple, you know, there's there's different challenges there. And thinking about a non-nutritional impact is we know that people who avoid gluten are less likely to go to restaurants uh, because they can't eat eat the food there. And so, and and that impact is less, I'd say nutritional as more social, but that also impacts health, you know, as we've all experienced in these last two years. When you can't go socialize, go to somebody's house and eat, or go to a restaurant and eat, you know, it impacts our quality of life. And, and we see that with people who have celiac disease as well, you know, that also impacts people with food allergies. And so when you kind of add those two together, it's not a, a negligible part of the population, you know, that's, that's probably upwards of almost 10% who probably more so that have different, I'd say, food intolerances that, that struggle.
0: Yeah. You know, I, just as a, uh, sharing a personal note for sec, Natalie, we, we're very blessed, and we have the opportunity to travel um, with some friends through Europe. And one of them uh, happens to be celiac. And it's interesting that when before we order, she always has a bit of a translation, depending on what country we're in with their language, to present to let them know that she is celiac. And I would say that I am really impressed with. European restaurants, and I'm talking about, you know, by the side of the road or, you know, a one or two star, you know, better in in an urban setting restaurant, they seem to be very, very in tune to issues around celiac and gluten. And it's not like you have to explain it to them. They kind of get it. And we've never ever had an issue, but I, I want to just sort of talk about the, the gluten piece for a second, because I do think, and I want to reference one of your your articles where people look at not taking gluten because they feel it will help with their diet. Maybe comment on that.
1: Um, Sure. So uh, I don't know if this myth, maybe it still persists to the same extent, but for sure, you know, a number of years ago, I would say it was more of a fad to avoid gluten. I don't think, and from our research, it's not like it's a huge fad or that there's a lot of people who are avoiding it. Completely, or excluding it completely for bad reasons, or for weight loss reasons. But there are some, um, and and certainly that has kind of gone around social media. There's no evidence to suggest that anybody who doesn't have, you know, celiac disease or not. There's also non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So I, I hate to make a blanket statement because people should talk to their physician. Um, there might be other reasons why. I some individuals don't tolerate gluten. Um, you know, some people experience relief from symptoms from irritable bowel syndrome as well. But for the most part, it's not avoiding gluten is, is not a, a recommended weight loss uh, regime. There's no evidence to suggest that 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 does anything uh, that leads to weight loss, and so that's a myth.
0: Interesting, yeah. And I hope
1: to dispel that. There's no, you know, I eat gluten for people who don't have any you know, bowel troubles or there's no ill health effects from consuming gluten.
0: Yeah, no, interesting, because I do think you, as you say, uh, Natalie, it, it becomes a fad, people sort of jump on it, somebody writes a book on it, the next thing you know, you know, there's a podcast about it, and people are, you know, getting their information from, from somewhere, whether it's accurate or not, They they what they want to believe, people are always looking for that instant opportunity to lose weight, you know, which... Uh, I just don't know that that's out there. So um, let me just jump on for a second. The fourth pillar, we talked about stability. Give us some background and why that's important when you talk about food security.
1: I think stability matters. <laughs> I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say the most, but I'm very interested in stability. I'm interested in doing more, more research around stability because I, I think it's probably underappreciated in terms of nutritionally, but also stress of, of having shocks. You know, for people who are on social assistance, say in Canada, have these regular, I'll call them monthly monthly instability where, you know, you get monthly or maybe you get Canada Child Benefit. And then, you you know, you have influxes of funds to access food, but then there's inevitable shortages every month. and And, you know, that's something that I definitely observed working in a grocery store that people have regular shortages or periods of instability uh and i think that that has impacts nutritionally when you're eating per- perhaps a lot during certain periods of the month and less at another period um it also has impacts on stress i would say which impacts a lot of you know our our bodies in terms of our physical health and then i think the other in terms of availability is climate change you know and and even things like this rise in inflation in food prices you know that's a major um, kind of shock to our stability and our, our availability of food. Sometimes there are, I mean, there's been lots of shortages I'd say over the last couple of years, you couldn't get corn flakes for a while. And then there's, you know, then there was the aluminum shortage. And so there's different things, you know, and those are fairly minor because we still have other, other foods. Um, and now there's formula, which is of course much more dire because, you know there's a population that that's exclu- their exclusive food or much bigger part of their diet than say cornflakes you know and i've noticed different times there's certain produce that's not available uh so so i'd say that that type of instability also i'd say it's it's more indirect in terms of just our experience of the food system like okay i'm sure a lot of people are already feeling and i'm sure in the us with the formula it's kind of an ongoing stress of, will there be another period of instability? You know, what's going to go up next? And then that's kind of why we also had that panic buying earlier in the pandemic. It's like, oh, my goodness, am I not going to have food next week? So now I've got to stock up, which, of course, then has other effects on other people. OK, now that person's panicking. I should buy more.
0: And I don't think that anybody, you know, has ever answered the question, Natalie, about the toilet paper shortage. You know, I know that that's not a food issue, but to this day, I do not understand. And nobody has able to explain the panic on buying toilet paper. Hardly any one of the four pillars, I get it, but, you know, talk, you know, it's just one of those panic things that sets in and everybody sort of just pivots to it and away they go. Any comment on that?
1: There was definitely panic buying, but I think part of the issue that people maybe didn't think about is, you know, all these people were going to work and school and going to the bathroom at work and school for the majority of your day. And so now no longer are the majority of your toilet paper needs at work or school. They're now at home, but we didn't, I didn't steal the university's toilet paper. Maybe I should have.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe there's a, a, a stocked up somewhere, you know, uh, Natalie, but, uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was one of the uh, articles that you wrote, and it's called A Syntax on Sugary Drinks Unfairly Targets Indigenous Communities Instead of Improving Health. What got you motivated to, to write that, and, and how, can, how can we improve that situation?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I wrote that article with Myra Tate, who's at Athabasca University, and, and she's an expert in tax law. First Nations tax law, so that's a, one of a, a few articles now I've written on sugar sweetened beverage taxes, and and that's a very big topic. It might seem small, but because uh, I've been researching it now for a few years, you know that article was specifically written thinking about First Nations in mind. And I'll leave the tax part aside because that's not my specific expertise. That's Myra's expertise. You know the the focus of sugar sweetened beverages to me, has been somewhat taken out of, it's been looked at from an ahistorical, apolitical lens, not really thinking about why, you know, people drink sugar-sweetened beverages or why they're disproportionately consumed by Indigenous people, um, and, and including First Nations. It didn't occur in a vacuum. And so I, I think a lot, part of my research is really to, to get people to think, I think, more, deeply about why people consume sugar-sweetened beverages, how that happened, and kind of the, you know, the historical context that has gotten us here. And to also think about health more broadly, you know, because it's proposed to tax, I'll just say POP, to improve people's health outcomes. Again, not thinking about all the the broader aspects that influence um, people's lives and and why they might consume pop, because we know that people who consume pop are disproportionately lower income and food insecure. And so we're proposing to raise the price of a food that's consumed by people who are food insecure. And so there's, to me, there's a tension there. And so proponents of the policy think, well, that's who will then drink less of it. And that may be the case. There will be people who will consume less because the price is being raised, but there will also be people who will continue to consume it because the price of the other foods hasn't changed and people still need to eat. And the reasons people drink it has, have not been addressed. And so we also need to think about the health of people who will continue to consume it. And, and in that article specifically, we're talking about water because you need to have something else to drink. And if you don't have clean drinking water, uh, that's a pretty basic human right that has not been uh, addressed, and I, I think working from the basics up should be kind of the the approach rather than um, trying to police what people eat instead of getting those those basic human rights there. Sorry, that was long winded. No,
0: I, I mean it's a it's a it's a lot to unpack. Again, Natalie, when you look at that, and I I, I just want to come back to one of the comments that you made about the historical context of how it is that we got here, you know, that we're looking at this from, from what your research shows, what, what, what historically did kind of drive us to a point where there's a sense that the economics, as opposed to health, looking at the health of, of people, you look at it and say, well, if we, if we economically tax and, and, and quote unquote with the idea, presumably of taking it out of their ability to, To purchase it, that they're going to pivot and go to some other place or do something different.
1: I have to think about how I'm going to answer this. Uh, When I'm thinking, when I'm talking about historical, I'm I'm thinking even way back. Like, why do we even have sugar? (laughs) You know, the history of sugar is the history of colonialism. We have sugar in our our diets because of slavery. So that's that's how you know, this became a big part of our our diets in, I'd say, for sure, the Western population. Obviously, India is a major producer of sugar in other places as well. But in terms of, you know, when settlers came in the Caribbean, you know, and and the American, the Southern states, you know, uh, in terms of sugar producing states, that was a big part of it. And then now, all pop in Canada and the U.S. is sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. So now that we there's no longer slavery, we've kind of we've stopped taking sugar from those sugar producing areas, and now we're subsidizing white farmers growing corn on stolen land. But it's causing ill health to marginalized populations, and they're profiting off of the selling corn, even though Indigenous people domesticated corn first you know in in north america and so and now we're proposing to profit the government to profit off of oppressed populations consuming it it's not random that they're consuming it disproportionately because we've made it cheaper compared to other products and also everybody consumed pop before and 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 you know food Patterns often follow this pattern, like higher income, higher class populations will consume something first. And then later, you know, lower income or lower class populations will then consume it. And we didn't punish ourselves for consuming it. And and the reason it causes ill health is is complicated by, you know, poverty um, and food insecurity.
0: If you look at that lens, Natalie, would you have a suggestion? to how we could sort of move away from the taxation piece on things like um, sugary drinks to looking at the health element of it. I, again, I, I ask it not that it's a simple answer for a very difficult question, but I just wondered in your research or just even you as a person whose you know, family ran gro- grocery stores, you, you lived it you know what what might you sort of see as a way to try to move away from the sugary drinks into more of a health um, conscious environment
1: um, I think there's a lot of different things we can do you know in the research we've heard from people that having lower sugar in drinks it doesn't need to be as high as it is um, you know that's one option obviously addressing food insecurity you know that's a a, a big Challenge. We know that, for example, there's been recent research on the Canada child benefit that was implemented now five years ago. So families who receive the Canada child benefit who are lower income, particularly renters, utilize most of that benefit to purchase food. I'd say I think it was almost 40% of that benefit. And so and we know that old age security is also associated with reduced food insecurity. So we know that providing and those can be considered kind of some form of basic income because they're both progressive policies, uh, help to address food insecurity. And so I think from the spending perspective, you know, making sure that people have the means to purchase food is important. I realize because I'm setting tax that that money doesn't come from. Nowhere, so you know, I, I do believe we need to look at our taxation system in terms of you know, is it progressive enough? You know, are we taxing the, the most wealthy? Are are they contributing their fair share? You know, these are big societal questions about, and I'm going to come back to the land, and I think Indigenous people often come back to the land. This is the source of you know most of Canada's economic success is natural resources. And that's where the bulk of our tax uh, revenue is coming from. And so how are we going to reconcile that as a society? I think very much has to do with our taxation system. You know, that's not a very big conversation that hasn't happened, but I I think about that a lot because it's kind of hard not to go there. Um, So what's fair I think is, is that something that as a society, we need to, you know, tackle.
0: Right. What I love about these conversations, Natalie, is that we started talking about food security, food safety, you know, we've now kind of gotten into the taxation system, but they are all, they're all intertwined, you know, so I kind of love the way that you've weaved that story. My, uh, my guest today, uh, Dr. Natalie Riediger. Natalie, I'd like to get sort of a sense for those that might be listening, you know, when you talk about the issue to educate, to mobilize, and then really hopefully that people will take action. What would you like people to, from an action standpoint, think about when they think about food safety and food security?
1: Well, I think there's um, the bulk of the change has to come at the systems level. So I'd say get engaged politically with, you know, voting, voting, candidates who have food security and food safety on the agenda. Um, Individually, I think there's lots you can do in terms of, you know, supporting your community, not wasting. Food waste is also a major contributor to food insecurity. You know, these are small things, but I think that they're, you know, something everybody can get involved in. and, And also, if you are food secure, be grateful.
0: Yeah, that is something I think that we need to be reminded of on a day-by-day basis. And so um, I, appreciate, I appreciate you kind of wrapping this whole conversation up with that. Be grateful. I think it's a great way to go. So Natalie, thank you so much for spending some time uh, talking about food safety, food security, and a little bit of taxation. Always a good opportunity to learn. So I thank you very much for, for the good work that you have done and continue to do. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today on Human's On Rights.
1: Thanks for having me, Stuart. Human's On Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg.
0: Thanks also to Trixie May Bituin. Music by Doug Edmund. For more, go to HumanRightsHub.ca.
1: Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.